Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chief Executive Officer Outfield Leadership, Dave McEwen. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Wow, what a powerful story that was from Jose. Um, lucky for me, I get to follow that, right? <laughs> My name is David uh, McEwen. I am the CEO of Outfield Leadership. And I speak, I train, and I coach on becoming a leader of authenticity, purpose, and effectiveness. And I want to share some thoughts with you this morning on how we might reimagine the art of leadership. Specifically, I want to cover three things. Number one, I want to talk about why I believe our current leadership models are failing us and why it's important that we fix that. Secondly, I'm going to share with you three simple concepts that are going to dramatically impact your own leadership. And then thirdly, I really want you to walk away with two or three really specific things on how you can bring authentic, purposeful, and effective leadership to your team, to your organization, and to your community. Now, the key challenge, the key obstacle that we have to me achieving uh, my goals this morning is communication. You've probably picked up that I'm not from around here. I'm from Texas. No, no. I'm from Ireland. Um, I'm from Belfast in the north. That's where you come from. You go to Dublin because it's pretty and it's cosmopolitan and it's fun. You go to Belf you come sorry, you go to Dublin for all of those things. You come from Belfast because it's drab and it's boring and it's monocultural. And I came from Belfast uh, to the States, first of all, to Massachusetts about six years, seven years ago. Uh, and my accent has decided to not relocate or certainly it's kind of dragging a little bit behind me. It's sort of hovering over the Atlantic Ocean somewhat. The word that you'll struggle with most of all is eight. Eight is a number between seven and nine. <laughs> but it's also part of a whole bunch of words like communicate, aspirate. And so if there's something that you don't understand in what I'm saying, it's probably just because there's an eight in there. I have a tendency to chew on my vowels and everything that I say sounds like a question. In fact, I'm just kind of talking through this to kind of get you used to the kind of the tone and the cadence uh, of my voice. Before we get stuck into to the leadership model that I want to share with you, let me just give you a little bit of a background of where it comes from, um, just because I think it's an important lens. Uh, what I'm going to share with you this morning isn't necessarily an academic model, although there are certain pieces of academia out there that support what I'm going to talk about. It really is an observational model um, that I've seen come into play over the last seven, eight, nine years in working with senior executive teams to help them get to the peak stage of their growth. So I started my career uh, back in the UK many years ago with Accenture. I'm sure you've heard of them, big IT consulting company. Uh, and I, I worked in their office in England for a number of years. And I went to work at Accenture not because I was particularly interested in IT, I, I, I wasn't, um, but because I, I wanted to see what leadership really looked like in a large-scale organization. I had studied business in, at the University of Glasgow and the University of Hong Kong, and, and, I, and I wanted to see how that played out in the real world. And pretty early on in my career, I discovered or I learned that those leaders who really were the most impactful on me and on the business weren't necessarily those leaders that were functionally or technically better than anybody else. In fact, sometimes they weren't. 
but that there was a pattern, there was something that came out of them that I couldn't quite put my name around, but I, I, I saw it and then it would disappear. Um, but that there was certainly something there that good leaders were able to draw out of the rest of us. I then moved over to Massachusetts uh, about seven years ago to join and ultimately lead the family business as any good son does. Um, my father had started a um, coaching consulting uh, business called Predictable Success. Uh, and I joined him about seven years ago. And we worked uh, exclusively with executive teams to help them achieve the peak stage of growth that was called predictable success. Uh, and, and so I spent a lot of time sitting, working with executive teams to help them master the intricate balance between innovation and creativity that you need to grow a business with systems and processes that you need to scale a business. And uh, it gave me the opportunity to work with a number of great organizations like Pella Windows and Doors, FedEx, Chick-fil-A, and a whole bunch of smaller privately owned organizations that you've probably never heard of. But what I started to see as I was working with these executive teams day in, day out, and week in, week out, was that there was a pattern of great leadership that came out, that, that in difficult and challenging times in these organizations, uh, history, uh, true leadership began to emerge in, in kind of the same way. And, and in, in fact, in the inverse, bad leadership came out almost in the same way. There are patterns of good leadership, great leadership, and bad leadership. Uh, during this time, I had a great privilege of um, uh, working on a joint venture with Inc. Media, which is the company that owns Inc. Magazine, um, probably the uh, best-selling uh, business magazine in the United States. And they run every year the Inc. 5000, which is essentially the 5,000 fastest growing privately held organizations in America. And uh, we went into a joint venture with Inc. With, with, um, Inc. Magazine to set up Inc. Consulting. And uh, the whole point of the offering was to work with organizations that were on the Inc. 5000 or aspiring to be on the Inc. 5000 to really help them master the complexity that comes with, with fast growth. And that was a great opportunity to see whether this leadership model tests out in fast-growing organizations in the same way that I'd seen it test out in larger uh, maybe more slowly growing organizations. And, and, and by the end of my time there, I really felt confident and comfortable that what I'm going to share with you stands true. Last year, I then stepped aside from the family business, um, essentially because although we were working specifically with executive teams, what, what I felt um, was coming out was applicable at every level of an organization. And I set up outfield leadership with the goal of helping leaders at any level of an organization to lead with authenticity, purpose, and effectiveness. And so that's where the model I'm going to share with you today comes from. It's purely observational, and it, it's just something that's been born out of my time of working with executive leaders uh, week in and week out. So let's get stuck in. Why do I believe that our current leadership models are failing us? Well, the reason is that the data tells us this. I was at a leadership conference a couple of months ago and somebody flashed this statistic from a study, I believe it was by Harvard Business School, that said 77% of leaders believe that they engage and motivate their employees. And in the exact same survey, 80%, 82% of the employees disagree. So somebody's not telling the truth here. It's like if you get 100 people in a room and you ask them if they believe that their um, driving skills and competency are better than the average driver, 99% of the people in the room will raise their hand. And we know that that's just statistically impossible. 
And so there's a blind spot in leadership going on in the world today. We, we overemphasize our own skills and our own attributes and our own abilities. And this is problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, at a real meta level, the world that we are living in isn't getting any less complex. It's not getting any simpler. The challenges that we are facing day in, day out, week in, week out, are not gonna go away. Whether that's economic challenges or climate challenges or social challenges or political challenges, they're getting more and more difficult to overcome. And as Albert says, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. The second reason why it's problematic that we have a leadership gap is that your organizations are not getting any simpler. They're not getting any less complex. You and your people are being asked to do more, to deliver more with less and less. And every day when you wake up, you enter a world of interruption, whether it's emails or phone calls or text messages or meetings or somebody coming into your office. We're expected to do more and more and more with less and less and less. And as a result, employee engagement is going down and employee burnout is going through the roof. So it's a serious problem. If we've got this leadership blind spot, we need to get to the root of it and we need to solve it. Now here is why I believe we have this issue. You may have a different reason for it and that's fine, but let me share with you what I believe. Ultimately, most models for me, most leadership models, workshops, books that are out there, they try to change actions and behaviors, which is a good, worthy, ultimate end goal. That's where we want to get to. If you think about leadership on any given day, um, the 70 to 120 actions that you take on any given day add up to the success of your business or the success of your leadership. And so we want to change them. We want to, to ensure that we're making more good decisions than bad decisions. But the problem is most models out there, and I believe most people who talk about leadership, they focus here on competencies, on skills, on knowledge, on ability. We sort of say, if only I could work on my time management, I'd be a better leader. Or if only I could work on difficult conversations, I'd be a better leader. Or if only I could be better at strategic planning, I'd be a better leader. But that doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, no two leaders are alike. There is no one-size-fits-all leadership model out there. The reality is that your leadership identity, who you are, who you are every day when you turn up, impacts your leadership in ways that you don't even know, you're not even aware of. And that unless and until we truly understand our own leadership identity, it's gonna be very hard to build a set of skills or knowledge or competencies on top of that that's gonna be effective. Whenever I think about leadership identity and whenever I see this come to the light in effective and good and great leaders, this is what it breaks down to, three areas. Number one, your leadership mindset. And I'm going to go into each of these in more detail in a minute or two. Number one, your leadership mindset. This is essentially how you approach decision making. It's about how you approach difficult situations. It's about how you approach teamwork. It's, it's a natural mindset that you turn up with every single day. Number two, a key part of your leadership identity is your leadership maturity. And by that, I don't mean the number of years that you've been in a leadership role. 
I actually mean the degree to which you can use your leadership mindset for good as opposed to it captivating you and you not being able to think in any other way apart from that. And then number three, whenever it comes to leadership identity is your purpose, what do you get up for every morning? I wanna go through each of these with you today. These are the three key things that if you can begin to get an understanding of, you'll see a dramatic acceleration of your leadership in the coming months and years. So what do we mean by leadership mindset? Let's take a look at the first one. Well, you know, a good de dictionary definition here, a mindset is either an attitude, disposition, or mood, or it's an intention or inclination. The reality is that there are essentially four key leadership mindsets that are present in any group or team. There are four key leadership mindsets that are present in any group or team, and you are a mixture of one, two, three, or sometimes all four of these. And they have positive impacts and they have negative impacts. Let me share with you what these four leadership mindsets are. The first one, and I'm sure as I'll talk through these, you'll begin to see this in some of your colleagues and peers that you work with. The first one is the innovator. And the innovator mindset is this. Typically, innovators are very creative. They're very um, high level. They enjoy brainstorming and debate. They're really good starters. They love to get things off the ground. Innovators are typically very entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial. In fact, most successful businesses are started by somebody that has quite an extreme innovator mindset. And within organizations, innovators have a tendency to want to start divisions or projects or teams. They're really good at seeing the vision. They're really resilient. They're really good at setting a direction of where we're going. They're really good at starting things. But here's the problem with innovators. Innovators get really fixated on a thing. They get really excited. This book, this book that I just read, this is going to transform how we manage our business and then squirrel. I've just come back from this great conference. Imagine there's just all of these great ideas about how we can imagine other ways to, to lead our, our, our business and we're gonna implement a whole bunch of them and then squirrel. You've seen that Disney Pixar movie Up with a little dog Doug on the road and he's having a great time and he's scurrying around and then he gets distracted by a squirrel. Innovators are like that. They get really fixated on a particular high level course of action and then they get distracted. Do you know what's the worst time to run into an innovator? Monday morning at 9 a.m. after they've come from a conference like this, because they've got a legal pad of 17 squirrels that we're going to implement now, and everybody back in the office is saying, well, what about last month's squirrels? We almost got there with those. What are we doing? Ah, I think we got the most out of that. We're good. Do you know if you're an innovator and you're here, do you know what your team are doing back in the office today? They're getting work done. They're getting stuff done because you're not there to distract them with their squirrels. They dread you coming back to the office. You walk down the halls, you say, hey, Bob, grab Marie, I've got a great idea, come into this room, and they're just thinking, oh no. It's last month's work gone. Innovators also have a, 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 a notion that things should take about seven times faster to do than they really do in reality. So if an innovator says to you, hey, come in, um, I want you to help me out, this is gonna take an hour, you know that there's a day's worth of work there. If they say, hey, come, this is gonna take us a day, that's a week's worth of work. If they say other things, it's only gonna take us a week, you know that's two months worth of work. And the reason why 
they have that is because the time that they give you is essentially the time that they're willing to give their discretionary effort to you. And then they're going to jump off to another squirrel and you're going to be left with the implementation. So innovators are really good at getting things going, but they're not that good at finishing them off. They're not that good at grinding down the details. So that's where we need the second leadership mindset, which is the implementer. And implementers don't get or they don't really need a whole bunch of fancy, kind of schmancy adjectives. Implementers are really just one thing. Ruthless task finishers. They just get stuff done. Implementers go through walls to ensure that what needs to get done gets done. You can tell an implementer in a session like this, because seven minutes is usually the magic number, the foot starts going like this, because there's so much pent up energy, because we've got actual work to do. And then in, in meetings, they start texting somebody, and they're saying, send me an emergency. Get me out of here. This guy's killing me. He's talking about mindsets and maturity and purpose. Can we go on our excursion early? <laughs> Implementers are just have this proclivity towards action, this need to move towards action to get stuff done. Implementers are like the MacGyver of the business. You give them a problem, two boiled eggs, a bit of string, and some chewing gum, and they'll find a way to solve that problem. Might not be pretty. You might have to go back and kind of shave around the edges, but they'll get it done. And our innovator and our implementer are very um, symbiotic in how they work together. If you've ever come across or, or, or worked with an innovator or an implementer team, they're very good at just getting out there, setting the vision, and then getting things done. Problem with our implementer is they can get really frustrated with having to focus on data sometimes. In fact, you, you start to send memos to an implementer. I'd love you to come to the leadership meeting next Thursday. Implementers would rather take a paperclip and unfold it and stab themselves in the eye and sit in your meeting. You know we've got actual work to do. Why are we talking about this? Just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. Now, of course, I'm not saying anybody in this room is like that at all. But implementers, it's all about that drive to action. And so bringing them into a, a, a room where we have to debate or we have to look at data, for them, it just seems like that's a waste of time. Next leadership mindset that's present in any group or team environment is the sustainer. And sustainers typically are more linear, they're more organized, they're more logical. They tend to think in terms of systems and processes and repeatability. Sustainers are really good problem solvers, and they're key, they're crucial whenever we need to build scalability to, into a system. You get a bunch of innovators and implementers into a room and tell them you need to scale something, and you, you have no hope, because they're just going to want to go out and keep doing things differently every single day. Because to an innovator and an implementer, the thought of putting rigidity or systems or processes in place begins to just wear on them. And so if we're looking to scale a group or team or, or a department or an organization, we've got to ensure that somewhere along the way we have a sustainer mindset. For the sustainer, their focus is on doing the thing right. Innovators and implementers are more concerned about doing the right thing. Sustainers are more concerned about doing the thing right. And that can cause problems. They can come across as being a little slow from time to time. 
but for good reason, because if we're gonna do the thing right, I need to walk through this process. I need to go through each step, otherwise we're not doing it right. They also have a tendency to come across as a bit of a naysayer. Sustainer's favorite word to say is no, and then you have to give them enough reasons to do a thing before they say, oh, okay. Whereas on the flip side, innovator's favorite word to say is yes, and then we'll just figure out how we're gonna do it anyway. Then the final leadership mindset that I wanna talk about is the collaborator. And for collaborators, they're less focused on doing the right thing or doing the thing right. What they're focused on is ensuring that our people are aligned, that what we're doing is for the good of the team, that we have consensus in the room. They're really good at creating cohesion and acting as a translator between the conflicts of the other mindsets that appear. Problem with the collaborator, however, is there can be a tendency to either unpick decisions or to not want to move towards a decision, to, to making a decision for fear of not having consensus. So you get a collaborator in a decision-making forum, you make a decision, and then a week later they come back and say, oh, I just spoke to Joan about this and she's not happy. Can, can, we, can we take a look at this again? And so collaborators can have a tendency to want to circle the drains to ensure that we've got cohesion and consensus around things. And together, these four mindsets, when you put them in a group or team environment, can be a very positive group. In fact, the decisions that come out of these four, whenever they're put together, can be fantastic. They can be really high quality. But the problem is just getting them to work together in the first place can be problematic. If you just think about it, they just operate in just different ways. First of all, think about if you need to move a photocopier. How does an implementer move a photocopier, do you think? Hard charging, get things done, implementer. That photocopier over there, boom. Is that where you wanted it? Just get it done. How does a sustainer move a photocopier? Sends a memo. On the third Thursday of the month, the photocopier removal team will approach the photocopier from the east side of the building, taking a corner each and bending at the knees for health and safety. They will pick up the photocopier and move it along this piece of yellow tape to drop it where I've marked the, the X marks the spot. How does an innovator move a photocopier? We have a photocopier? Is it one of those like really shiny, bright, wonderful, funky 3D maker photocopiers? No? Well, get rid of that. We want to be cutting, cutting edge. We want to be on the, on the edge here. Go get one of those 3D makers. For a co collaborator, they're probably just more concerned about how everybody feels about us moving the photocopier. You okay with us moving the photocopier? <laughs> Wait, if we needed to get another photocopier, would that be okay? How do you feel about that? Should we have a couple of focus groups to... So we just, these four mindsets, they just interact in different ways. They just approach the world in different ways. They make decisions in different ways. The, the way in which they contribute to group and team discussion is different. Another key thing to think about is, you know, just quite simply coming into work. When does an implementer come into work? Hard charging, you know, putting in the hard yards. You've heard of LIFO and FIFO and all of that good stuff. Implementers are fish. First in, still here. Implementers put in evenings and weekends at their job. There's nothing more interesting than sitting in the parking lot of an organization that has two big implementers. Implementer number one drives in, sees the other implementer's car and goes, ah, oh, just beat me. Goes over and touches the hood, ah, oh, still warm. 
I'll get them next time. When does the sustainer come into work? 9 a.m. Because that's what it says in the manual that they probably wrote. And when do they leave? 5 p.m. Because that's what it says in the manual that they probably wrote. When does an innovator come to work? Whenever they want. When do they leave? Whenever they want. Squirrel. So if you work for an innovator, when do you have to be there? All the time. What do you got to know about? Everything, because you never know what they're going to ask you about. And collaborators, they're just making sure that everybody's carpooled and that we're all okay, and you know, making sure there's buses to get people where they need to go, and that there's after work activities and all of that great stuff. And so the conflict between these mindsets can start to become apparent. In fact, if you look at any team or group dysfunction, 60 to 70% of that is going to come down to a different leadership mindset. That's all. It's not that the person's a jerk. It's just that they think in a very different way than you. And if you can, if you can strip that out and depersonalize the conflict, your team decisions are going to be much better. Two particular clashes to look out for. Number one is the innovator and the sustainer. Typical innovator-sustainer interaction. Innovator busts through the sustainer's door, because that's how you get into meetings with innovators. Sustainer's just sitting there at the desk, looks up at the innovator. Now, do you think our sustainer, who's you know, linear, really structured, has 20 minutes just to shoot the breeze with somebody that's walked into their office? No, they've got their Outlook calendar printed out, and they're ready to go, and their schedule, and their file's all here. Looks up at the innovator. And by this stage, the innovator's already projectile vomited a whole bunch of squirrels. But one thing they say is, hey, great news. I've just signed a million dollar contract with Blogs and Co. Now, of course, for an innovator, a million dollars is just anywhere north of about 650K, right? Sort of order of. It's a million dollar contract. Well, a million dollar contract. But to a sustainer, what's a million dollars? A million dollars, not a penny more, not a penny less. Sustainer looks up and says, and you signed the contract? I write the contracts. I didn't write this contract. The innovator says, oh, don't be such a Debbie Darner. We had a great meeting. We shook on it. We'll get the contract out next week. Why do you have to be so glass half empty all the time? And so there's just this conflict between innovators and sustainers. Um, innovators just think that sustainers are big naysaying, you know, just waste of time to follow the process. And sustainers look at innovators and think that they're glib, they speak in hyperbole, and that they may, at worst, end us all up in jail. <laughs> the other um, interaction that you might want to take a look at is the implementer and the collaborator. Implementers that are out there putting in the hard yards, going through walls to get things done, fixing problems, getting stuff um, off their to-do list. They look at collaborators who are there to ensure that we're harmonious and everybody's aligned. And they sort of go, what does that person do? I just see all they do is go around and talk to people. I never see them at their desk working, never see them out there with a customer. They just talk to people. And collaborators look at implementers and think, yeah, you'd probably sell your grandmother to get ahead. You, yeah, they just think that they're, they're mavericks and that they're just unemotive and cutthroat. And so there are clashes there. And so as you're just thinking about your team um, that you're part of and, and, and the, some of the issues and challenges that you might have, the answer may well lay in here. And so my first question to you, my first question to help you reimagine leadership is this. What is your natural leadership mindset? And how do others perceive you?
When they see you coming, do they go, great, here's an innovator and I need an innovator? Or do they go, oh, no, hide me? What is your natural leadership mindset and how do others perceive you? The interesting thing about this model is it's useful, as I said, in trying to depersonalize conflict. But where it can be problematic is when people start to wear it as a badge of honor. Well, of course, I'm an innovator. That's the way that I am. That's not what it's about. It's about knowing and understanding who you are and the limitations. And that brings us on to our next point, which is leadership maturity. If we're looking at your leadership identity overall, the next point is leadership maturity. And by this I mean, I don't mean the amount of time that you've been in a leadership position. I don't even mean, quite frankly, how old you are. What I really mean is the degree to which you can control and harness your natural leadership mindset or whatever mixture you have in there for good, as opposed to being held captive to it and being unable or unable to think in any other way. And what I've observed over the years is that there are really three phases of leadership maturity. And just like human maturity, we can go through these from teenager to adult to slightly older adult to old age. We can go through these. But also similar to human aging, or human maturity, we can actually get stuck in a phase. And I have seen leaders work out of each of these three phases over and over and over again. So let me talk through them. The first maturity phase that you want to be aware of is the captive leader. And as I go through these, I, I wanna make a point really clear. There's nothing morally right or good about any of this. It just is what it is. What I want to get across is the key is in understanding who you are and then making a decision about what you want to do with it. And so the captive leader is essentially captive by the need to live up to their mindset. So somebody walking around saying, yeah, I'm the ideas guy around here, or I just get stuff done around here. That's, the, that's the, the, the thought processes of somebody who operates out of this mode of leadership, of captive leadership. They seek um, solutions based solely on that way of thinking. In fact, their perspective is, if everybody just thought like me, we'd be okay. And at the extreme, they have an inability to recognize the need for any of the other mindsets. So an implementer that operates out of um, this level of maturity, they, they just, you probably never see them in the office. They're always out there getting stuff done. They don't want to come to your stupid meetings. Don't make me fill in your stupid spreadsheet. Um, we've got actual work to do. And they're just captive by this need to move to action. The second thing um, that, that characterizes ca um, the captive leader is that their horizon of focus is essentially one on what's good for me and what's good for my team. What's good for me and what's good for my team. So when a captive leader comes into a decision-making process, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're coming in with their functional hat on and they're gonna fight for what they can get for their team. At this point, they don't even see that there's anything above it. They don't even see that there's a higher purpose. So captive leaders essentially are, 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 are imprisoned by their own mindset. It controls them, they can't think in any other way. The next level up the maturity um, spectrum is the enterprise leader. In this phase, 
we begin to recognize the limitations of our mindset. We understand that, you know what, if I'm an innovator and every single meeting I come to, I just throw the data out the door and say, hey, let's just do a whiteboard session, that might not be the best way to get a good solution. We can begin to see the need for other mindsets in this phase of maturity. And in fact, we start to, to welcome it. We start to say, well, hold on, let's not make a decision here because we don't have the voice of the sustainer in the room. I don't know if what we're talking about is gonna be scalable. Or they say, hey, let's not continue this conversation because I don't feel like we're all aligned. We gotta make sure we've got a collaborator mindset in this room. And so we're starting to see that other mindsets exist. They might not use this terminology or this language, but we understand that in order to make a well-informed decision, we need to have the right balance of implementer mindset, innovator mindset, sustainer mindset, and collaborator mindset. And their focus starts to shift here as well, moving away from what's good for me and my team toward what's good for the organization. We begin to realize and understand that as we're operating as leaders in the, in the, in the, in the business, when we come to a decision-making um, body, we have to leave our functional hat at the door. There's a greater purpose here, which is the good, the interests of the organization, of the in enterprise, whatever we're there to discuss. And that the viewpoint that you bring should be on getting the best outcome for the organization. And so enterprise leaders start to realize that they are a cog in a wider wheel that is the organization and begin to talk about shared purpose. Enterprise leader, by definition, are more effective than the captive leader. The next stage in this maturity model is the integrated leader. And in this phase, when we get here, we begin to transcend our mindset. We transcend it, and by that I just mean we use it only as a tool. We understand that I'm a predominantly, I'm an innovator or an implementer, and that it can be useful in certain circumstances, but, but actually I only use that as a tool. I'm not driven by it, I'm not compelled by it. I, I pick it out of my toolkit like I would any other um, tool. In this phase, we can relate and work with leaders of, on mindsets at all levels. We, we, we begin to put some understanding around the people in our team that may be operating at a lower enterprise or captive level, and we can work with all of them. And we seek the best solutions regardless of mindset. Doesn't matter what the mix is, what's the right decision here? What's the right decision here? And then finally, in the integrated leader phase, our horizon of focus elevates up again. And here we start thinking not just about what's good for the enterprise, certainly not, so, not just what's good for the team, but what's good for the community. What's good for the community. We realize that we're a cog in this great organization that we work for. And we realize that our organization is a cog in this broader community. And you can define community however you like. It could be your town or city. It can be your region. It can be your state. It can be the country. It can be the world. It can be the people that are here that are trying to build community to do great things and change the world. But that integrated leaders operate from this perspective of doesn't matter what the decision is, necessarily what the impact is on the business. What's the impact on our broader community? Because I'll tell you that leaders, and I've seen it happen again and again, leaders who make decisions that are in the best, best interests for the community, do you know what funny enough happens? 
It comes back down and it's in the best interest of the organization. May not seem like that initially, but it rolls down and the benefit and the payoff is there. And so when you layer these two things on top of each other, I hope you can see that you have a natural leadership mindset or mixture of one or two or three or four of these. And I'm sure you can tell that I was caricaturing them for effect. But you'll have a mixture of those characteristics of how you show up every day and how you make decisions. And on top of that, then, is your ability to harness that for good or to be held captive to it and to not be able to think in any other way. And like I said, there's no morally, ethically good or bad or, or indifferent thing about any of this. It's just what it is. But who are you and what do you want to do with it? And so the second reimagined leadership question I want to ask you is this. What is your leadership maturity level and how does it impact your decision making? What is your leadership maturity level and how does it impact your decision making? When you come into a room to make a decision with a group of people, are you just drawn towards that natural leadership mindset? And this is what it looks like. If you're an innovator, and, and, and you're in that captive mode, you walk into a room and the first thing you want to do, well, first of all, you take a look at the agenda and you go, no. Or you go from A to C to F and then back again because you're just thinking all over the place. The second thing that you want to do is automatically just start thinking about the most harebrained things that you can think of. And that doesn't always generate the best decisions. If you're an implementer, are you actually coming in to the room being physically present, being spiritually and emotionally present, and giving your input. Implementers are the ones that say, hey, I don't care what the decision is here, just let me know what, you want it is, what, what it is that you want me to do. The problem with that is, if we don't have an implementer mindset in our decision-making process, then it's gonna be too harebrained. We don't have the viewpoint of how this actually happens in the real world. And so if you're an implementer, are you mature enough in your leadership to sit through data that might seem like overkill? Are you able to sit through debate that might seem like a waste of time? Are you able to add your voice in a positive way about what might work or not work in the real world? As a sustainer, do you come into a room and, and just go automatically, here are the numbers, this is what the numbers say and we can't bend? Or here's the process and this is what the process says and we can't bend? Or do you come in and say, hey, I understand that data and process is a tool for us to use, but you know what, if we do a bit of brainstorming, we're not gonna bet the ranch, it's not gonna burn everything down. And as a collaborator, do you come into the room and say, hey, we're not gonna leave this room unless we get absolute un uh, unanimous decision on this and we're gonna be deadlocked like a jury? Or do you say, hey, I understand that there are some decisions that we need to make that, you know what, we maybe only get 80% of the buy-in for it, but that's okay. So what is your leadership maturity and how does it impact your decision making? And the final thing that I want to talk about before you go off on your excursion, the third key part of your leadership identity is your purpose. And by that I mean what compels you every morning to wake up and to go into work and do what it is that you do. What do you want to build as your leadership legacy? What do you want to have written on your um, obituary? What is the reason for what it is that you do? We live in an incredible time where we have the privilege to be able to pursue passion and purpose like no other. And for those leaders that have a clearly defined, well articulated and clearly communicated um, leadership purpose, there are two things that come out of that. Number one, it acts as your north star. 
So when everything else goes to pot, when you're forced into the worst parts of your natural leadership mindset, your leadership purpose can show you the way through. When you're faced with a difficult time, a challenging situation, your leadership purpose will provide you with that North Star. But secondly, what a well-articulated, well-communicated leadership purpose does is it, it shows your people who work with you who you are. They understand what it is that you want to achieve every day. It calls them into a common purpose too. But here's the problem with leadership purpose. I believe that the media has done us a disservice by overemphasizing or mythologizing the nature of heroic leadership. We hear stories all the time of um, daring do, like um, Captain Scully landing the plane on the Hudson, or Jeff Bezos in his um, garage packing books. And it, it extends to all areas of life, to politics where we're looking for heroic leaders, to sports where we're looking at Steph Curry and Tom Brady and Mia Hamm and Lionel Messi to be the hero and, and save the day. It extends into culture and, and movies, you know, this just proliferation of, of heroic movies. David Brooks, um, New York Times um, uh, writer, wrote an op-ed a couple of months ago that's just sat in my stomach, and he says that we're living through a period where um, we're, we're overemphasizing the need for acts of heroism, where we're looking at heroic leadership rather than parabolic leadership. The problem with heroic leadership um, is that, and, and, and don't get me wrong, we need it in times. We need it in certain times of, of crisis. But the problem with heroic leadership, when we build it into our organization every day, is two things. Number one, when you pit yourself as the hero, you're teaching learned helplessness in your people every day. And it can happen in small ways. It doesn't have to be big, bold ways. Typical example of heroic leadership. Somebody um, that works for you comes in and says, hey, boss. I've got this problem, not quite sure what to do with it. And you say, just leave it right there. I'll deal with it. And what you're doing at that point is you believe that you're saving the day, but you're denying them an opportunity to go and handle that emergency or that crisis or that problem themselves. You're stripping away their ability to develop, and you're creating a sense of learned helplessness. The other thing with heroic leadership is it's not scalable. If you think about it, we can't all be Luke Skywalker. We can't all be Frodo. We can't all be Katniss. And so here is my urge to you today, that when you think about your leadership purpose, I encourage you, be the guide, not the hero in your people's journey, and call others to their own adventure. Be the guide, not the hero, and call others to their adventure. Be Gandalf, be Yoda, be Hamish. Could you imagine how different Lord of the Rings would be if Frodo walks in and says, hey, excuse me, Gandalf, big wizard, um, nice to see you, nice to meet you. So there's this problem, Mordor and Sauron and all this stuff, and there's this ring, and you know, I have to go and put the ring in. And if Gandalf had said, oh, don't worry, Frodo, I'm, I'm a wizard, just leave that ring there. I'll just fly over there and put it in. Actually, I know Sauron myself, so you know, don't, I'll go do that. How different that movie would be. It wouldn't be a trilogy. It wouldn't even be 20 minutes. And Frodo would go back to the um, Shire and live a great life and you know, marry another hobbit and enjoy himself. But he wouldn't have learned 
the lessons that he needed to learn. That's what the hero's journey is all about. It's about facing an obstacle that's in front of us and becoming a better version of ourselves. And your leadership purpose, I encourage you, should be all about helping your people become the best version of themselves. So be the guide and not the hero and call others to their adventure. And so that's my final question to you. What is your leadership purpose? And if you don't know what it is, that's okay. Or if you haven't articulated, that's okay. We are in some of the most beautiful surroundings and you've got some great excursions today. Go and talk about it. Go noodle on it. Let it sit in the back of your head. But here's my urge to you. Make sure that it calls other people to, to their adventure. Don't be the hero. Be the guide. And so to wrap up, your leadership identity is comprised of three things, whether you like to admit it or not. Your mindset, how you turn up every day, uh, how you approach decision-making and difficult challenges. Your maturity level, which is your ability to use your mindset appropriately or be held captive to it. And your leadership purpose, and whether um, you're out there putting yourself as the guide or the hero. Those three things make up that leadership identity. And so back to the foundation of great leadership that I started with, I believe that you can truly accelerate your effectiveness as a leader in your actions and your behaviors by using some skills, yes, your competencies, yes, your knowledge, and yes, your ability, but on a solid foundation of your leadership identity where you understand your own uniqueness as a leader and you understand the uniqueness of the other people in your team as a leader and you can talk openly and honestly about it and connect with each other toward a higher purpose. And imagine what the world could be like if we start interacting with each other on that level rather than kind of this ephemeral behaviors and action level. Final thing from me, if you want some slides from this talk, there's a website there. If you want to discover your leadership mindset, leadershipmindsetquiz.com. I'm around all afternoon. Thank you so much for listening to me, and have a great day.